the sermon text this morning, uh, a leper and a paralytic, is from the book of Luke, chapter 5, verses 12 through 26. If you have your Bible, uh, please follow along with me. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? And who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Amen. Well, Corey Ten Boom was a Dutch member of the underground resistance during the reign of the Third Reich. Many of you, I think, are probably perhaps familiar with her story. Um, to make a long story short, uh, after being captured by the Nazis, uh, Corey suffered in the concentration camp known as Ravensbrück. Her sister died there. Her father died shortly after their capture. She survived, and some of you might have, been, might have read her book in the past, The Hiding Place. Uh, and in that book, she recounts a story about giving a message at a church in Germany after the war was over, and afterwards coming face-to-face with a guard from the very concentration camp where she had suffered. This is part of what she writes. She says, It was a church service in Munich that I saw him. It was 1947. 
and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, that's what he was wearing at the time. The next moment I saw a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, his hand came out. Will you forgive me? It couldn't have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours. As I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. Corey had suffered so much at the hands of the Nazis, and this man represented everything she had undergone. For her, was the cost of forgiveness too high? Well, this morning we come to a passage in our study in Luke's gospel concerning forgiveness. And it points us not just to the forgiveness we can offer others, we'll get there in Luke's gospel, but mostly to the forgiveness we need, we all need, from God. So Ed has just read the passage for us. I just want us to look at four things that Jesus does in this passage, all right? Jesus wills, Jesus withdraws, Jesus sees, and Jesus forgives. Jesus uh, wills, withdraws, sees, and forgives. So first, Jesus wills. Look with me, church, at verse 12. Luke writes, while Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now to those of us who have spent time reading the Gospels, perhaps have grown up in church, this seems like a familiar Gospel kind of story, right? Jesus is becoming known for healing sick people, and here's a sick man. But there's a level of tension here that we can easily miss because of our familiarity and our distance from first century Palestine. And that is this, leprosy or or whatever skin disease this man was, was afflicted with, it could have been a variety of skin diseases. So leprosy has kind of become known as Hansen's disease in our culture. Uh, In biblical culture, that word could cover a gamut of skin, contagious skin diseases. And, And leprosy made a Jew unclean unclean both before God and the fellowship of God's people. So back in Leviticus, we get the the nitty-gritty details of how to deal with people troubled by contagious skin disease. And one of the most striking, I think, haunting parts of those instructions is Leviticus 13, verses 45 and 46. You can write that down and look it up later, but let me read it for us. There we read, the leprous person who has the, disease, has the disease, shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. 
and he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So this man approaching Jesus is not just a man riddled with disease. This man is an outcast, a reject. This man is an untouchable. One author calls a leper's life at that time sort of like a a living death. And so Jesus is confronted here with a man with whom he shouldn't have any contact as a self-respecting Jew. This is a tense situation, and the man amazingly comes believing Jesus has the power to heal him from this disease. That's not the question that's bothering him. Jesus has the power to heal him. What he's asking is, if you will, will you make me clean? It's not Jesus' power, but Jesus' decision, Jesus' choice that this leper is appealing to. It's an amazing statement by a diseased man. In church, the tension here is palpable, it's, and it's elevated as we read on to what comes next. Do you see that? We read the opposite of what any Jew should have done. And Jesus stretched out his hand. What's he doing? Is, is Jesus crazy? This man's unclean. Jesus will be unclean too if he touches him. Get away. And Jesus stretched out his hand and, oh, the unthinkable. He touched him. Jesus touching the untouchable. And it's amazing what happens. He says, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left. It's it's an astonishing miracle, but it points to an even more astonishing truth about Jesus, doesn't, doesn't it? Jesus is not made unclean by the leper. He makes the leper clean. You see the power of Christ on display, church. Leprosy obeys his command. And it's even more beautiful to recognize Jesus' power and how it's communicated here to the leprous man with such compassion. In, In his description of this event, the gospel writer Mark, right before Luke, says of Jesus at this time that he was, quote, moved with pity, stirred with compassion. This man comes and he says, Jesus, I know the power is with you to change my life. I just need to know, are you willing, Lord? Are you willing? And, and the, the words that came from Jesus' mouth next must have been the most beautiful words that man would have ever heard. I will. Be clean. And Jesus not only speaks these words, presumably he could have just spoken and it would have happened, but he chooses to, to touch the man no one else would touch. One author says of this, imagine the tenderness and care which that gesture would have communicated to a man used to people avoiding him at all costs. Christians, see the compassion of your Savior. Not only does he have the power to save you, he has the will and desire to save you. 
He reaches out to your disease-ridden heart, and he doesn't shy away in disgust at the sin he sees there. He reaches out and he, he touches your heart, your dark heart, my filthy heart, and he makes the heart clean. What a savior we have. I wonder, Christian, are you finding yourself this morning stubborn in your sin? Entrenched? Are you finding yourself knowing that you need to run to Christ? Anybody would tell you that, but you just got to maybe just sin a little bit more while you're at it or do maybe a little bit more penance so Jesus loves you more before you go to him. Christian, look at how willing he is to save. Look at how willing he is to touch you in your sin with his forgiving power. Doesn't that just make your sin look all the more icky and unattractive? Doesn't Jesus' willingness soften your heart? It's like what Paul says in Romans when he says, Jesus' kindness is meant to draw you to repentance. Don't wait. Run to him. I was reading last night in J.C. Ryle's Thoughts for Young Men, classic work, about how Satan is totally fine with you having all the best intentions to grow spiritually, all the best intentions to make resolutions for holiness, as long as you make them starting tomorrow. Go to Jesus now. He is willing there in verse 14, Jesus tells this healed man not to tell anyone what has happened. That's probably in large part because Jesus is trying to tamp down on any sort of worldly, feverish pitch that would come around this miracle worker. He has come not for fame, but for death. But he does tell the man to fulfill the Old Testament laws of a healed leper. You can read that in Leviticus 14. Go to the priest. And then in verse 16, we come to our next point this morning, and that is that Jesus withdraws. Jesus withdraws. So in Mark's account, we see that the former leper who's told to keep his mouth shut speaks freely about what has just happened. And the crowds grow greater. And we see that reflected here in verse 15 in Luke as well. Luke says, but now even more, the report about Jesus went abroad and great crowds gathered to him to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But what does Jesus do in verse 16? Luke writes, but Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. We saw Jesus' habit in this way back in chapter 4, but let's remember it this morning as well. Jesus has a mission from his father, that's for sure. His, His life has just increased in complexity. His ministry is catching fire. That's all true. But what does he do? In this kind of height of his ministry, and there's just this, this maybe like frenzy about who this guy is. He retreats to get alone with God. It's an incredible view of our powerful Savior in his humanity dependent on his Father for strength, for refuge. What an example for us. Jesus isn't basking in the limelight. He's withdrawing to find strength in solitude with God, away from the noise, away from the crowds, just him and his father. I think the application here for us is clear, isn't it? In our go, 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 go culture 
here in Northern Virginia, finding time away from the noise seems increasingly difficult. What is one of your most common responses to your brothers and sisters here in our church family when they ask you how you're doing on Sunday? Busy. How are you? Our to-do lists never end. Our phones never stop buzzing. And we're constantly thinking, do this, do that. Go there, go here. It never ends, but here Jesus pictures for us the liberating gift that belongs to us as adopted children of God the Father. It's one of the disciplines the Christian who would seek to rest in Christ must cultivate. It's a picture of retreat and reflection and solitude with the Lord. To do that takes great humility. This hit me as I thought on this on on Friday as I was studying this this text. I was just hit by it because I've just been finding it harder and harder to to prioritize, especially earlier on in the day, time with God alone. And it hit me that that resistance in my heart reveals to me that I'm living like I'm God. I I wouldn't say that, but, but I'm living like I'm God. That's why I don't pray. That makes sense, doesn't it? What do prayer and solitude do for us? They take us away from what we know we need to be doing to prove that we're valid people, respectable people, successful people. It demands us to let go of what we want to keep doing to garner other people's respect for us and just stop. It shows dependence. Prayer always shows need. The person who doesn't think they have need doesn't pray. There's nothing like prayer to remind us we can't control things and only God can. Prayer is humbling. It's usually someone no, something no one else sees you doing. It's usually something that doesn't spark immediate results or checking off of to-do lists. Prayer forces us to recognize we aren't God and to humble ourselves before the only one who is. If we are prayerless, it's probably because we are proud. It's probably because we're living life subconsciously as if we are God. J.I. Packer puts it this way. He says, the prayer of a Christian is a humble acknowledgement of helpless dependence. What we do every time we pray, he says, is confess our own powerlessness and God's sovereignty. So, dear brother, dear sister, are you willing to let things go for a bit in your life this week so you can get alone with God? Are you willing to let emails sit? You know, it's, it's 24 hours. 24 hours is the period of, of you know, politeness to respond to an email. Are you willing to let texts go unread so you can find refuge in your Father? Maybe, for some of you, the most desolate place you can go to this week is a few hours without your phone. Maybe the most desolate place you can go to this week is a few days without Instagram. It's a brief point, but I think it's an important one. What, what cost does that mean in in? comparison to spending time with the Lord you'll spend time with forever. Jesus did it, and he sets us an example of humble dependence on God. 
The third thing we see Jesus do in this passage is see. So we've seen that Jesus wills, Jesus withdraws, now Jesus sees. Look with me at verse 17. On one of those days as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. So Jesus is in a house here, uh, and some men, Mark in his gospel tells us there's four of them, they carry this paralyzed man on a bed to where Jesus is teaching and, and, and ministering. Verse 19, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof. So the, the bottleneck at the entrance of the house is so crammed that these men, let alone carrying a bed, can't fit. So they go up on the roof. So in, in first century Palestine, uh, houses were built with two stories. One was kind of inside on the bottom and the other side, other one was kind of exposed to the elements on top, right? And there, there was a stairway usually on the outside that you could get to the top and do things there as well. You see that throughout the New Testament. And so they, they don't see a, an inside entrance, so they're like, huh, there's stairs. So they can't get to Jesus on the horizontal plane. They go vertical. The, the roof was probably made of wooden beams, uh, which were then kind of thatched with, with thorns or clay. And so they innovate. They, they go up on the roof, let him down with his bed through the tiles. Tiles might have been meaning just kind of pieces of clay. And they lower him into the midst before Jesus. I, I wish I knew how they did that. Like they just keep kind of ropes on hand. I don't know. It's a crazy story. These men remove a roof above Jesus and somehow lower a bed down into the crowd so they take center stage. And what does Jesus see when they do this? It's interesting. Luke doesn't mention that he sees the paralyzed man per se or the roof now in need of repair. No, in verse 20, Luke says Jesus saw their faith. These men trust Jesus alone is the only answer to their companion's desperate need, and so their faith will stop at nothing to get to the only one who can help. I, I can imagine, this is just healthy speculation or unhealthy, I don't know, you can tell me later, but I can imagine other people that have come with their sick and they just see the crowds and they're just like, ah, not today. It's like Harris Teeter this afternoon before the Super Bowl, right? I'll, I'll do something else. And it, I can see other people just kind of turning away. Maybe we'll catch Jesus next time. Not with these men. When others may have given up, they are persisting. Church, Jesus sees their faith, and it's not mere head knowledge. Their faith is true faith because their faith is a faith that acts, that moves, that puts forth effort. And that teaches us about the true nature of faith. True faith, you can read about this in James later, true faith takes action. Faith without any kind of action is dead faith. Of course, faith doesn't earn God's grace. It doesn't impress God and twist his arm so he shows us favor. No, actually, faith itself is a gift from God, part of his grace to us. Faith doesn't earn us grace, but it is the way we respond to grace. 
Faith runs to Jesus. Faith does whatever it needs to do to get to Jesus, even if that way is inconvenient, even if that way takes more time, even if that way is uncomfortable, even if that way is downright embarrassing. Jesus sees the faith of these men, and so must we. Faith is the way we grab hold of Christ and his promises. And so is your faith at work, Christian? Is it striving? Is it reaching? Is it trying to grasp more of Jesus? Are you regularly praying about how you can grow in trust and obedience to your Lord? Maybe when this kind of thing comes up, you just get discouraged. Because you can point to other people, even in this room, and you're just like, man, their faith is crazy off the charts. I don't have that. My faith feels inferior, inadequate. Well, Christian, remember, your faith by itself isn't what saves you. Faith is the tool by which you grab hold onto the one who saves you. So maybe for you, the the tip is to stop agonizing about your faith and just pursue the object of your faith. Because as you find yourself pursuing Christ, growing in Christ, following Christ, you will find your faith strengthened. Meet up with other members of this church. Talk about what you need, the prayer support you require so your grace can grow, or your faith can grow. And then, then run, run to Christ Like these men, persist. Don't give up. Jesus sees your faith. So Jesus sees the faith of these men, and he turns to the paralyzed man that they've lowered down to him, and what does he do? This is our last point, and I think kind of the the big theme of this passage, and that is that Jesus forgives. See, Jesus is not only willing to heal something that would last temporarily, but he's willing to forgive something that will last eternally. Look with me at verse 20. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, and that's not kind of like a man, or it's kind of like a friend, man, your sins are forgiven you. We're not really sure why Jesus says this. Uh, One option is that he's connecting the man's paralysis to some sort of sin in the man's life. Sometimes disease is linked to sin. I think more likely, though, because we're we're cautioned to draw lines between sin and and sickness in other parts of Scripture. We don't always want to draw a one-to-one correlation or causation to that. I think more likely is Jesus is looking at this man who is paralyzed And he's seeing how this is just evidence of the fallen, broken world. Fallen and broken by sin. So he sees this this evidence, this symptom of a greater problem, and that is sin. And he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. He forgives the man's sins before he does anything about this man's paralysis. He sees sin as the man's root problem. And he solves it. He forgives. But not everyone present is really okay with this solution, right? We see those ominous people, the scribes and Pharisees. Actually, I think this is the first time they're mentioned in Luke, the Pharisees. They're present. And they are no big fans of Jesus at this moment. 
So these were men who taught the Old Testament law and much more besides, trying to keep God's people in line. And, and so this statement from Jesus is just totally beyond the pale for them. I mean, no one can say that. Verse 21, they say, this is blasphemy. It's Jesus setting himself up as a representative of God somehow. And that's horrifying that he would do that. And so they respond, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're completely right. (laughs) They're completely right about God, aren't they? I mean, God alone can forgive sin because sin ultimately is against God alone. He has created each and every one of his human creatures to worship him, and every one of those creatures has turned aside from him. So yes, of course we sin against others. We need their forgiveness. But think about it. When you have wronged someone else, do you always get forgiveness? Maybe you don't. What do you do? You, you kind of move on with your life, saddened by the way you've hurt someone else and saddened that they haven't seen fit to forgive you. And that relationship is broken. But we can still live with that. We can't live with that with God. Forgiveness is on a different level with God. We would like forgiveness from others. We need God's forgiveness. Ultimately, his is the only forgiveness we need for eternity. We have sinned against him above all others. Remember what King David says in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. So the Pharisees here are exactly right about God and that only God can forgive, but they're dead wrong about Jesus. Jesus isn't blasphemy. Jesus is God. Jesus has authority to forgive. And here's the perfect moment for him to prove that. He turns to the Pharisees and religious leaders and he says in verse 22, why do you question in your hearts? I find that a really freaky statement. I just don't want anybody to just be like, I'm questioning something and they say, why are you, question- why are you questioning that? I don't know. That would, really, that would really make me uncomfortable. So he starts that way. And he says, which is easier To say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? You see what he's doing? Jesus is really good at this. He's good at asking questions and putting you in hard places. Because obviously to forgive sins is the harder thing to do. Only God can do that. But to say your sins are forgiven? Your sins are forgiven, Joe. Your sins are forgiven, Ian. That's really easy. I just did that. Right? There's no recognizable change that will wash over the face of this paralyzed man. Oh, his sins were forgiven. Wow. No. Sins are forgiven. Great. Can't see nothing. Much harder to forgive sin. Much easier to say sins are forgiven. Who can argue with that? So, Jesus takes this opportunity to show more about who he is. To show his power and authority even over sin. And so he argues from the unseen to the seen to prove that his power in the unseen is is legitimate, right? He argues from the forgiveness to the healing, which nobody can dispute, back to the forgiveness to show he has authority in both places. So he's saying, do you doubt my power to forgive? Try this on for size. Verse 24, 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So, here it is. If the man does this, if he rises and picks up his bed and goes home, if he responds to the voice of Jesus, then who are the Pharisees to say the that Jesus' powerful voice of forgiveness is not also true. There's a lot on the line here. Verse 25. And immediately the man rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on. Kind of delightful irony there. And went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, well, we have seen extraordinary things today. It's a mic drop moment for Jesus. He's showing he has not come just to heal the sick, but to heal the soul. He has come not just to heal skin disease, but sin disease. Jesus has come to save sinners. He has come with authority to forgive sins. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. I've used this illustration before, but hopefully it was long enough ago that you guys forget it. Um, Tim Keller, I think, makes a great point about what forgiveness is. And he uses an illustration. He says, if a friend breaks my lamp, and if the lamp causes, costs $50 to replace, then the act of lamp breaking incurs a debt of $50. If I let him pay for and replace the lamp, I get my lamp back and he's out $50. But if I forgive him for what he did, that debt does not somehow vanish into thin air. Keller continues, when I forgive him, I absorb the cost and payment for that lamp. Either I will pay the $50 to replace it or I will lose the lighting in that room. To forgive is to cancel a debt by paying it or absorbing it yourself. Someone always pays every debt. Either you make the perpetrator suffer for it, or you forgive and suffer it yourself. Church, Jesus came to forgive, and how would he do that? He would forgive by suffering the cost of that forgiveness on himself. He came to take the hit for us. He came to bear the wrath of God for us. He came to take the cost of forgiveness and pay it all. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're in need of this forgiveness. You are not reconciled to God because you have tried to live as the God of your own life. And you deserve judgment, his judgment, for your rebellion. But the good news is that God has sent his son to be the rebel in your place. If you will trust in him, he will bear your sins and forgive you and give you new life. Won't you do that today? And church, forgiveness from God changes everything. Corey Ten Boom didn't have the strength to feel the forgiveness she knew she wanted to show her former persecutor. 
And she lets us in on her inner struggle, her inner turmoil. But I love how she ends the story or continues it. She cries out to Jesus, to the one who forgives to the uttermost. Here's how she picks up the story. She says, I had to do it. I knew that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. Church, forgiveness has power. Forgiveness is seen most wonderfully in the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus bore the wrath. He paid the cost so we can stand forgiven at the cross. Let's pray. Lord, forgiveness is such a hard thing for us to do. But for no one was it harder than your precious son, who wept tears as of blood when he saw what was laying in front of him, and yet laid down his life on the cross, wrongfully accused, also he could take the cost that forgiveness demanded. Thank you for the cross. Lord, we pray that the message of forgiveness coming from you would allow us the freedom to forgive others. In this church, in our homes, so that we might show them the power of the cross. Hear us now as we praise your name in Jesus' name. Amen.